So now we uh, continue our series on Time is of the Essence, and this week's title is The Paradox of Christ Following. Um, as you know, we move through the scriptures one right after another. We're in the 16th chapter of Matthew, and today we'll be looking at verses 21 through 27. 21 through 27. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to get them out and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we have some up at the front here. You're welcome to come get one and use it. And if you don't have a Bible at all that is in an easy-to-understand language, take one of these. We'd love for you to have it as a, as a gift from renovation. And always, the scriptures will be on the screen as well for you to follow along in case none of the others happen to work. Uh, in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only rule that we have for our faith and for our life. So listen as we read God's Word. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, that time being what we talked about last week, the time that Peter made the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside. I told you Peter was going to mess up before we got out of this chapter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Uh, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Let's... Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer. God, we just thank you for your word that's never changing, ever true. We thank you that it is the place where we can run with any problem, with any difficulty, with any event or issue in our lives and find the answer. It's a place of solace. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of peace. It's your love letter to us. And we thank you for it. I thank you for uh, this service this morning when we can come before you and, and rid our minds of all the distractions and think totally about you, focus on you. You are the object of our worship. Open our hearts, open our minds, so that we may hear the message you want for us individually today. It may be different for each one of us, including me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
One of my favorite uh, authors in British literature was a fellow named Lewis Carroll. And I don't know whether you're familiar with the name at all. I know you're familiar with some of his books. He wrote a great little book called Alice in Wonderland um, that was so popular that he followed it up with a second book called Through the Looking Glass. Same character Alice was in Through the Looking Glass, but the story was a little different. Seems that Alice was sitting in her den one evening uh, petting her, her cat who was sitting on her lap. Uh, she looked up and saw a mirror above the, above the mantelpiece, and she began to think, as Alice always did, she began to think, wonder if there could possibly be in that mirror another world that is the exact opposite of this world we live in. So that was the premise for the entire Through the Looking Glass story. Carol had created a mirror image world. And in order in his world to get from one place to another in this mirror image world, you discovered that it was no good to travel toward the place you were going. If you wanted to get there, you had to travel in the opposite direction to reach there. Strange concept. And as you read the book, you're kind of wondering, well, what was this guy on when he was writing in the first place? This is a children's book. Um, in order to get a lot of places, it seems that we have to go in the opposite direction. There was a conversation that took place with Alice and one of the queens in the story, and it goes like this. The rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday but never jam today. It must come sometimes to jam today, Alice objected. No, it can't, said the queen. It's jam every other day. Today isn't any other day, you know. I don't understand you, said Alice. It's dreadfully confusing. That's the effect of living backwards, the queen said kindly. It always makes one a little giddy at first. Living backwards, Alice repeated in great astonishment. I never heard of such a thing. But there's one great advantage in it, that one's memory works both ways. Well, I'm sure mine works in only one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the queen remarked. So you can get an idea there of how strange this sounds to us as we try to read the book. I can remember pulling it down reading and I had to read even that several times to understand what was going on. It takes an incredible amount of effort to imagine us doing any ordinary daytime lifestyle activities working in a mirror. It's hard to believe. If you've tried to cut your hair or you've tried to trim your beard or something like that, you know what I'm talking about. It's a little difficult to look in that mirror and do the opposite of what you feel like you should do. There's a, another quote from the book that I'm going to put up here. This is the queen talking, and she says, I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. 
When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. So the queen's saying, you know, you can learn to think this way. It just takes some practice. may sound strange, but we can do it with some practice. There's some occupations um, that we run into on a daily basis that require this mirror image kind of action in order to accomplish what they set out to do. The two I can think of right away are my dentist and my hygienist. Both of them do about half of their work in a mirror. I don't know how they do that. I guess that's why they get all those big bucks, but they work in the mirror in your mouth. And what Jesus is now asking of his disciples is that they learn to think in the similar inside-out, mirror-image kind of way. This passage that we read sets forth the, uh, the heart of what we call here at Renovation Church Christ-following. Some people would call it discipleship, Christ-following, which I think is, is a little more personal. And it strikes a death blow, a death knell, to those uh, self-centered false gospels that has, have become so powerful and so popular in today's contemporary Christian world. See, it doesn't leave any room for the gospel of getting, in which God is considered some sort of utilitarian genie who jumps when we say we have something that we need, and he takes care of that whim at that time. It closes the door to the gospel of health and wealth, which asserts that if a believer is not healthy and prosperous, then it's his fault because he hasn't exercised his divine rights or perhaps he doesn't have enough faith to do so. It undermines the gospel of self-esteem, self-love, and, and high self-image, which appeals to our natural narcissism, and it prostitutes the, the spirit of humble brokenness and repentance that marks the gospel of the cross that Jesus was talking about. To come to Jesus Christ means to receive and to keep receiving forever. And Jesus makes it clear that there must be a cross before there's a crown. There must be suffering before there's glory. There must be sacrifice before the reward. And the first little fill in the blank on your handout is this. The heart of Christ following is giving before gaining and losing before winning. Now that's kind of through the looking glass kind of talk, I believe. Losing before winning? How could that possibly be? Well, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had talked this way. We've looked at a few other scriptures uh, over the last several months. Uh, one of them was Matthew 10, 37 through 39 that says this. This is Jesus talking about the high cost of following him. He says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Looking glass talk. He told the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What must I do to have eternal life, to enter the kingdom of heaven? I've done everything. I've kept all the commands since birth. What must I do? And Jesus says to him, One thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Looking glass talk. Craziness. John 12, 24 through 26 says, this is Jesus talking again, teaching I should say, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Looking glass talk, opposite of what we would think. And those teachings ran contrary to the, the normal teachings of Judaism of that day, and they run contrary to our popular quasi-Christianity of today. Like most of their fellow Jews, the, the 12 disciples of Jesus, um, had expected Messiah, I think we've talked about this many times, had expected Messiah to be a little different than he was. They expected him to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire. They, they expected him to dethrone the Herods. They expected him to establish God's earthly kingdom in all of its glory. And they expected most of all for Messiah to bring peace and justice to the entire world. And that hadn't happened. And it was difficult for them to reconcile Jesus' teaching about humility and sacrifice and self-giving when their view of Messiah was so very radically different from that. It was as if they'd been propelled through the looking glass and everything they saw and everything they heard was a mirror image of what they thought, what they had been taught. Jesus didn't act like the Messiah that they had expected. Now, they knew that Jesus' teachings and his healings couldn't be explained humanly. And God had touched their heart, as we saw in, in the scriptures from last week, to the point that they came to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. But all of this just didn't add up yet. It didn't make sense to them yet. didn't fit together. And Peter, on their behalf, made their views quite uh, clear when he told Jesus that they were not willing to accept the idea of Messiah's rejection or his suffering or his death, nor were they convinced that the way of Christ following demanded such a high cost. In verse 23, Jesus says, in essence, Little Rocky, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. There's a truism at work 
in those words. It's impossible for God to come into the midst of an anti-God society without there being hostility and rejection and reproach and oppression. When holiness meets unholiness, a violent reaction is inevitable. Doesn't matter where it is. You see it in our world today, all around the world, all around the United States, all around Ori County. When holiness meets unholiness, a violent reaction is inevitable. And then in verse 24, Jesus says something else. He says, if anyone would come after me, And when he says that, there's no doubt in my mind that the disciples would have been reminded of that time that he called each one of them. I mean, it had only been two and a half years since, since he did the calling. And they left families, and they left friends, and they left occupations, and they left everything that they had in order to follow Jesus. To the unbelievers in the crowd... Those words that Jesus spoke, come after me, applied to that initial surrender that we make, that new birth that we make. When we turn over a life of sin to Jesus for salvation, we exchange that life of sin for a life of righteousness, a life of living rightly. And again, the believers in the crowd, the disciples would have been the top, when they heard, come to me, would have been reminded of that call to live in daily obedience to Christ. Daily obedience. Jesus reminds his disciples, and I think us through, through the words of Matthew, that the key to Christ's following is this idea of winning by losing that through-the-looking-glass talk. And it always involves three things, self-denial, cross-bearing, and loyal uh, obedience. So the, the three principles, principles we want to look at are those. The first principle of Christ following is self-denial. Jesus make it, makes it perfectly clear in this passage and, and in those others that we looked at, and probably a dozen more if we were to just search the Scriptures, that the person who is not willing to deny himself cannot be a Christ follower. If you're not willing to deny yourself, you cannot be a Christ follower. Jesus says to Peter after Jesus' arrest that... He will deny him, he will deny Jesus three times before the cock crows. And each time that Peter is confronted about his relationship to Jesus, Peter more vehemently denies that he even knows this Jesus. Peter disowns his master in front of the world. Peter denies his master in front of the world. And that's exactly the kind of denial that, that Christ following is, is to make in regards to ourselves. Deny ourselves to the world. Self-denial not only a, is a characteristic uh, 
of a, of a person when he comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also a characteristic of his lifestyle after saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the self of which Jesus was speaking here is natural, sinful, rebellious, unredeemed self that's at the center of every sinner. It's at the heart of all of us. And it can reclaim even temporary control over the believer, if we're not careful. To, not, to, to deny that self is to confess with Paul, as he did in Romans seven eighteen. he said, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. Paul, the great writer of most of the New Testament, I know that nothing good lives in me. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaimed that, that the, the first ingredient for a person to, be, uh, uh, to gain entry into the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. To have a spirit of utter poverty in regards to goodness and righteousness and worth and merit. Utter poverty. Being poor in spirit is to humbly recognize one's spiritual condition. I think we all have to do that at some time or other. It is only the person who realizes how poor he is that can share in the riches of Christ. It's only the person who realizes how sinful and damned he really is who will ever come to know how precious the forgiveness that God offers really is. The whole purpose of the Old Testament, and particularly the law of Moses, I guess, was to show man just how spiritually and morally destitute he is in himself. He can do nothing by himself. The law was not meant to show men how they could work their way into God's favor. The law was given to show men how much they need a Savior, how they can't do it themselves by their own um, resources. That's self-denial. The second principle of Christ following is cross-bearing. Cross-bearing. Jesus says, take up one, your cross, take up one's cross. This idea of cross-bearing, I think, has profound meaning, and it, it behooves us to understand what the meaning is. And so often when I define something for someone, I try to tell you what it's not in order to tell you what it is. So let me talk a little bit about what cross-bearing isn't. Taking up one's cross isn't some sort of uh, uh, mystical level of, of self uh, Of, of self-spiritual life, I guess is what I would say, that only religious people, the really religious people, the really religious elite people can ever achieve, so it's not available to us. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is it the common trials and hardships that all of us have in our lives. A cross is not, it's not having an unsaved husband a cross is not having a nagging wife. A cross is not having a domineering mother-in-law. Nor is it having a, a physical handicap or suffering from some incurable disease. That's not the cross he's talking about. 
To take up one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for Christ's sake. It's to be willing to endure shame and embarrassment and reproach and rejection and persecution and, yes, even martyrdom for the sake of Christ. Now, to the people of Jesus' day, this talk of the cross was concrete and vivid for them. It was an, the cross was an instrument of execution, of course, reserved for Rome's worst enemies. It wasn't a common practice to uh, crucify people. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was a symbol of torture and death that awaited any of those who raised a hand, who would dare to raise a hand against Roman authority. And when the disciples in the crowd heard Jesus speak of this taking up the cross, they would have immediately thought about a poor condemned soul walking down a road with the instrument of his execution attached to his back. For a Christ follower to take up a cross is for him to be willing to start on a death march. That's how serious it is. To be a Christ follower is to be willing to suffer indignities and pain and death just like a condemned criminal would. Not all of the disciples were martyred, but every last one of the disciples was willing to be martyred if necessary. To come to Jesus, to make a decision for Jesus, to, to start our relationship with, with, however you want to word that in, in your life, it's not to raise a hand, a little hand in church. It's not to check a little box on the card that says, I accepted Jesus today. To come to Jesus is to come to the end of self and of sin, and to become so desirous of him and his righteousness that you would make any sacrifice in the world for him. Whatever he requires, you would do. Taking up one's cross represents suffering that is ours because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Time is of the essence. As Jesus moved, began to move out toward Jerusalem for his last time, the place of execution where it says in verse 21, he must go. There wasn't a choice here. He must go. He'd already taken up on his back the cross that bore the sins of the world, and he was heading to Jerusalem to be executed. The big idea for today is, is found here in this uh, particular principle. Jesus doesn't call his disciples to, make, to him to make their lives easy and prosperous, but to make them holy and productive. It's not a life of ease that he calls us to. It's a life of holiness that he calls us to. And willingness to take up one's cross in that way is the mark of a true Christ follower. See, many people 
Their churches are full of many people want to be no-cost Christ followers, but Jesus doesn't give us that option. There's no such thing as no-cost Christ followers. So we've got self-denial and we've got cross-bearing. The third principle of Christ following is loyal obedience. And it was only after a person denies himself and takes up his cross, Jesus said, that he is prepared to follow me. Only after those other two are we loyally obedient. Christ following is the submission of lordship to Jesus Christ. And that becomes a pattern of our lives. It becomes the lifestyle that we live in. It's not a one-time occurrence. Yes, it takes place one time, but then it becomes a lifestyle for us. Matthew 16, 25 through 26 says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying that whoever would live only for saving his earthly, physical life, his, his ease and comfort and acceptance by all the world, he's going to lose his opportunity at eternal life. But whoever is willing to give up his earthly, worldly life and, and suffer and die, and if, if necessary, um, do it for Christ's sake, he will find eternal life. That's through the looking glass talk. Makes no sense to us. Every person has the same choice, though. He can go for it now and lose it forever, or he can forsake it now and gain it forever. That's the way it works. There, there was this missionary who died January the 8th, 1956, at the hands of the Aka Indians in Ecuador. Name was Jim Elliott. Um, they made a movie some a couple of years ago called The End of the Spear that was the story of these guys that, that went to Ecuador. Um, and we've gotten to know the family quite well, Karen and I. In his diary that they found, Jim Elliott had this quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now that's through the looking glass talk. That makes no sense at all. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A true Christ follower is willing to pay whatever price faithfulness to Christ requires, whatever it takes. The story is told of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy and, and singing. No matter what happened to him, his joy was just overflowing and abounding. And one day his master asked him, what have you got that makes you so happy. And the slave replied, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has forgiven my sin and put a song in my heart. 
Well, how do I get what you have? His master asked. You go out and you put on your Sunday best suit and you come down here and you work in the mud with us and you can have it, came the reply. I would never do that, the owner said indignantly as he rode off in a huff. Some weeks later, the same master asked the same question of the same slave and was given the same answer. And a few weeks after that, he came a third time and said, Now be straight with me. What do I have to do to have what you have? Just what I've told you the other times, came the answer. And in desperation, the master said, All right, I'll do it. Now you don't have to do it, the slave said. You only had to be willing to do it. It's not that the Christ follower has to be a martyr, but the Christ follower has to be willing to be a martyr if faithfulness to Christ demands it. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, self-denial, and take up his cross, that's cross-bearing, and follow me, that's loyal obedience. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Jesus insists that God thinks differently from how we mortals think. God sees everything the right way, and we see everything inside out, a mirror image. 1 Corinthians 1.18 was one of the verses that, that I used the very first Sunday that we opened Renovation Church, and it's still a powerful verse for us to look at today. Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament, was writing to the church at Corinth, and he said this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And a little later in the same letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul said, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. That mirror is pretty dim. The image is pretty confusing. There will come a time when we'll be face to face. And everything will be crystal clear. There won't be any doubt in our minds what the call has been. The call goes out. It goes out to follow Jesus. A call that has rung down through the ages like a great bell in a distant church. 
that we used to hear so many years ago. Off in the distance, can't see the church, but you know it's there because you can hear the bell calling us out of whatever we're doing to follow it. Imagine the bell echoing through the streets of Little River. Pick up your cross and follow me, it says. Pick up your cross and follow me. Imagine the sound resonating through Starbucks and Chick-fil-A and Holiday Inn and, and McDonald's through the primary school and the elementary school and the middle school and the high school, through Seacoast Hospital and Loris Hospital and Grand Strand Hospital and Little River Medical Center, through bustling suburbs, busy developments, and lonely apartments. Pick up your cross and follow me, it says. Imagine people coming out of their doors to see where that noise is coming from, coming out to see and listen to hear the bell tolling. And there ahead of them is Jesus, a compelling and a mysterious figure. Pick up your cross and follow me. And you know that following him will cost you everything that following him will give you everything. And there's no half in, half out on this journey. Many people down through the ages have been puzzled by these scriptures that we've read today, these claims that Jesus made, for the simple reason that they have failed to see the significance of the end of the story. We know the end of the story. We win, you know. It, it's over. Time is of the essence. The, the Son of Man is coming in his kingdom. He's already risen and exalted as the Lord of the world. Yet what the world counts as great is foolishness. And what the world counts as folly is true wisdom. It says, cling to your life and lose it. Give everything you've got to follow Jesus, including life, and you'll win. That's through the looking glass kind of talk. In every generation, since the time that Jesus spoke those words, there have been, it seems to me, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word in every generation. What would it be like? What would it be like? What do you think it would be like if you were one of those? What a difference it could make. What a difference Little River could be. What a difference Horry County could be. What a difference this country could be.
What a difference as our people go to Haiti, that God-forsaken place could be, and to the rest of the world. What would it be like if you were one of those? Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for, for your word. I thank you for allowing us to come around it today. I thank you for um, your clear talk, not so much through the looking glass talk, about the commitment we make to be followers of yours, the self-denial, the cross-bearing, the loyal obedience that it takes from each one of us. Oh, that we would be willing to sacrifice that little bit for the great gain. Is it possible? Is it possible that we could win by losing? By giving up, we would be gaining. How crazy is that? And yet that's what you call us to do. And we thank you that you allow us to take part in your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's pretty much what takes place at this table. Self-denial, cross-bearing, loyal obedience. All those things took place on that Thursday evening in that upper room at that Passover meal with his friends. When he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. I think he was hoping that each one of us would be one of those Christ followers. Each one of us could make a difference. We say, oh, I, what difference could I make? <laughs> it's just me. What difference could a dirty fisherman, smelly fisherman in the Sea of Galilee make? No education, no nothing. Yet when they were called and they were obedient, they gave up self and they bore the cross they changed the world why would you be any different 